Before we dive into this episode of HRD Masterclass, I'd like to take 30 seconds to share the exciting news that we're now seeking sponsors for Season 5 to release in 2024. This is a wonderful opportunity to support the podcast series and also share your message with 3,500 HRD listeners around the world. Sponsorship options cost just $750 and $600 per episode, and for full details, contact D-A-R-R-E-N at allbypodcast.com. Right, let's start the episode. Diversity was in my mission. We failed. I don't want to fail. I got to make it right. And that's where we step in because we got to customize and get them back on track. Welcome to the Human Resource Development Masterclass, the new podcast series from the Academy of Human Resource Development, the organization that leads HRD through research. I'm your host, Darren Short, and throughout this first series, I'll be joined by leading authors, researchers, and scholars to explore the fundamentals of HRD and how those are changing in the 2020s. Our focus for this episode is diversity, equity, and inclusion and we'll be exploring the role of HRD, the opportunity that HRD has to work on social justice issues, preparing HRD practitioners to work on diversity issues in organisations, and much more. To help me, I'll be joined by three leading scholars. Dr Marilyn Y. Bird, Associate Professor in Department of Human Relations at the University of Oklahoma. Dr Yunju Cho, Associate Professor in the Department of Human Resource Development at the University of Texas at Tyler, and Dr. Torrance Sparkman, Associate Professor at the Rochester Institute of Technology in the Saunders College of Business. In the first part of the episode, I'll chat one-to-one with each of them, and then for the second part, Marilyn, Yunju, and Torrance are together to explore their shared interest in diversity, equity, and inclusion. That discussion is brought to you with the help of the generous support of our sponsor, the Department of Human Resource Development at the University of Texas at Tyler, Souls College of Business. All of the content you'll hear in this episode was recorded during April, May and June of 2021. Right, let's dive in to meet my first guest. My first guest today is Dr. Marilyn Y. Bird, Associate Professor in the Department of Human Relations at the University of Oklahoma, where she teaches courses in human resource development, diversity and justice in organizations, organizational behavior, and organizational ethics. Marilyn is a recognized social justice scholar and educator and subject matter expert. In 2020, she received the Academy of Human Resource Development's Critical HRD Scholar Award. Marilyn is the current Editor-in-Chief of Advances in Developing Human Resources, one of the four journals sponsored by the Academy of Human Resource Development. In addition to her research on matters of social justice, Marilyn's research focuses on theorizing the leadership experiences of Black American women. Hi, Marilyn. Welcome to the HRD Masterclass podcast. It's great to have you here for our episode on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thank you, Darren. I am so glad to be here and glad to uh, have an opportunity to share my insights on diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
Well, I'd like to start high level and then we'll dig into some of the detail. So from a high level perspective, why don't we start by exploring what human resource development means to you and how you picture diversity, equity and inclusion fitting in to your understanding of HRD? So my, my basic uh, conception, Darren, of, of HRD is grounded in the learning and performance paradigm and most contextually within spaces where people work. And so I, I use the simplest notion that HRD is about developing people to learn so that they can perform well. But where my thinking about HRD departs from this simple notion is that the conditions whereby people uh, learn, they're not the same. And the foundational defining constructs of HRD is, is how I assume this universal experience that, uh, about how people are learning and performing. But early on in my doctoral journey, I began to question how scholars and researchers and all those who were involved in creating the, you know, these, the learning and performance uh, paradigms, how they did not see how social issues seem not to exist and that HRD uh, seems to occur in this utopian workplace. And it didn't take me long to realize that the social systems were actually missing from the, from the foundational constructs of HRD. I began to see that diversity, equity, and inclusion were not being taught as fundamental constructs of HRD. So I had to give myself permission to build upon that omission. And I, and I use the term, give myself permission, because I was trying to find answers to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and, and problems from, from, uh, from the consequences of, of, of being different. I was trying to find these answers in the HRD literature, and, and it, it just wasn't there. Um, so my emerging framing of HRD then began to, to be informed by the reality that learning and performance can be impeded by people's lived experiences, specifically the lived experiences that are the consequence of diversity. And then recalling my own experiences as a, uh, as a Black woman professional uh, you know, when I was more in the practitioner uh, realm of, of, uh, of the workplace and encountering blatant racism and recalling how those experiences, uh, you know, uh, were intended to inflict pain and how that actually didn't have a, a real huge impact on how I performed, but it did disturb me when I encountered these experiences. So, uh, you know, just a little bit more about how I see uh, how I see diversity. I actually see diversity as just as a state of being. However, it elicits a response from people, particularly as it pertains to race. So, so what I'm saying is, when people hear the word diversity, now it you know it has a lot of different meanings. But a lot of times people, you know, go directly to the idea of race. Actually, I read somewhere recently that equity is just the, the, the means to, to reach equality. But I actually see equality as a birthright. 
and but I see ignorance as a failure to acknowledge that right. A few years ago at a at a actually at a HRD town hall forum, I used the expression invite in. I used that that expression then, not necessarily to to uh, to elicit the response of inclusion, but I used that that is uh, that term at that time as a means of showing um, that we need to transcend boundaries of our tight-knit community and we should invite collaboration among ourselves as a community of practice. Since then, that, uh, that, that idea or that term that I used then of, of uh, invite in is actually caught on, I believe. And, and I hope that this, this expression will actually inspire the action of inclusion. But, um, but yeah, but I see HRD as a platform for learning and performance. I see it less, as, less bounded than I initially began to study. Uh, but I also see it as a time that we can go boldly to places that no one has gone before and actually use um, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion as a as, as a as a catalyst for change. Your description there of how HRD is pictured as occurring in a utopian workplace is is a really powerful picture, and at the same time that contrasts with how you described the way that lived experiences can then impede learning and performance at the end of your answer there you talk about diversity as a catalyst for change and and clearly that change is needed what i'm wondering is whether you're actually seeing that change happen in organizations in 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 the workspaces and in organizations i i think the way diversity equity and inclusion the way it looks is how businesses uh, or even organizations are trying to market themselves for uh, for profit reasons. But um, from the business perspective, um, I think the the business case for diversity brings uh, you know tries to make a case that we need to bring in talent, we need to bring in new ideas from diverse backgrounds. Uh, because this helps in the recruiting and retention. People want to, to, uh, to work with people that look like themselves. Uh, this, this helps to increase the business's market share. So I believe what, what diversity looks like in practice is it's a marketing strategy to bring in diverse groups of people. But I believe what is missing is that the very people that are being used to market diversity are the most vulnerable to the consequences of difference. I would like to say something about the theoretical piece because I think that's something that's also missing from, from, from human resource development because we don't, really, we don't really have any theories that we use to to study diversity because one thing diversity is you know it's all over the place it doesn't just belong to HRD and I believe one theory 
that would be very useful for us to consider in our research, um, particularly those of us that are, are trying to, to research you know, diversity problems and social problems, is critical race theory. And I noticed lately that critical race theory is really under fire in, um, in the media. And I, I just know, noticed lately that schools are, that, that are, and it really surprised me that schools were even using critical race theory, you know, in their studies. But critical race theory actually, you know, it, it emerges from, from legal scholarship. And, and, and it just explains how the law maintains an unjust social order. But, you know, it, it's often disrupted to dominant ideology because, because of its commitment to anti-racism. And I think that is why it, it, critical race theory is under, under fire right now because people are not really trying to understand that it's not trying to, you know, promote this ideology that, you know, that, for instance, that, that, that white people are the oppressors. It's just trying to acknowledge that racism is embedded in society and within systems and in the in institution. And it's an everyday norm. So this theory is useful for us not only understanding, trying to understand the, 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 the permanency and the everyday norm of racism, it also helps us to see how it's being manifested in the workplace. If human resource development is about learning and performance improvement, we need to understand this, this theory and we need to apply this theory in our, in our work. So it sounds like we don't have HRD specific theories to study diversity. And that means that HRD researchers are tapping into a broad range of theories like the critical race theory that you described Given that some of what you're talking about boils down to people in organizations and the relationships that they have, I'm wondering whether some of the theory that researchers are tapping into is coming out of human relations. My scholarship is uh, HRD, but I can see human relations and HRD having such a close connection and actually... Human relations is a founding principle of HRD. HRD and, and, and human relations both involve the human factor. So I believe it's difficult to implement uh, or even practice diversity, equity, and inclusion without pursuing stronger human relations at all levels of organization. My, actually, my favorite definition of human relations was uh, inspired by um, back in the, uh, the 60s by a guy named Thomas Millard. And he was an educator. And he, he was actually motivated by the civil rights events of the 60s. And uh, Millard said that human relations is the awakening and, and the affirming or the reaffirming of the basic human values of equality and justice. And it relates to those common links by which members of society are connected in the way we are brought into relationships with one with the other. And, and, and another thing he said that, that was so profound to me is that he said a fundamental goal of human relations is 
learning how to develop working relationships with those with whom we differ. Uh, for we cannot allow our differences to divide us to the point where we are incapable of social action for the common good. You said there that it's difficult to practice diversity, equity, and inclusion without building stronger relations or relationships within an organization. And, and, and as I listened to that, I was thinking about how well-placed HRD is to help with that. There probably isn't any other function in an organization that's better placed to work with people to develop the skills and the attitude and the knowledge that's needed to build relationships. If that's the case, do you see HRD being ready to take on that sort of work? I believe that HRD is actually in a very good place to be able to, to teach human relations uh, principles. But I think about the competencies of HRD educators and scholars and practitioners and the like. What, what competencies are we drawing from to teach students and employees how to build relationships. I was looking at, I believe it was uh, ASTD competencies and I think SHRM's competencies. And I didn't really see anything that really stood out as, as, as human relations. So where are we even learning the competencies that we need to have to teach people and in particularly I'm concerned about HRD education. Everybody doesn't even have the competencies to teach diversity because there's, you know, there's historical perspectives of diversity that we need to teach people. And, and, and again, you know, I, there's such a, a close relationship between when we're talking about helping people to build relationships and and helping people to understand the historical um, foundation of groups. And, and when people don't understand the, the, you know, all groups have, have histories. And, and, and we don't understand those histories enough to be able to, to, to know how to um, not just form relationships, but understand people experiences and their dilemmas so so every you know there, there, I believe that if we're putting people in positions uh, then we need to put people in positions that have an informed perspective in order to, to be able to you know pass on good information and and so I, I believe that that's important as well you raise a really good point there about groups and when I think about groups in an organization and you start thinking about who's in the groups and who's not in the groups. And of course, like the title of this episode is about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so inclusion is being in those groups. And you also talked earlier about being invited in. So being invited into those groups, but the, the opposite of being invited in and inclusion is exclusion. And so I'm wondering why we don't talk more about exclusion rather than inclusion. 
you know, do, inclusion makes you feel good. Who doesn't want to be included? And so, so, so the message then that, that, you, that, that we, we get is that you're welcome here. Come on in. You, you know, you are included. You will be included. And, and so we just, we just welcome you to this place. So is this realistic or, or is it superficial? I, I, I want to say that it's realistic that it is, you know, businesses really want to, to promote this idea of inclusion. On the other hand, what is actually happening in, in workspaces? We don't hear, I, I think, the, uh, the antithesis of inclusion, which is exclusion, because it conjures up images that don't elicit the, the feel-good response. When we talk about exclusion, it seems to open up this, this space that we, we need to talk about why are people being excluded? Because of what? You know, we espouse inclusion while practicing exclusion. You know, we, we include people because, again, we want to use this as a recruiting and a retention to get people to the door. Once we get people to the door, we leave them at the door. Are we acting on our invitation? What are we doing once we get a person to the door to make them really, truly feel welcome? Are we following through to see if they're experiencing anything that may not make them feel welcome? We espouse inclusion, but we, we, we practice hate. I'm not saying we all practice hate, but hate is being uh, practiced in workspaces. So, you know, exclusion is really a, a, a more critical way to examine diversity, but it also is, is a way of digging deeper and, and allowing us to question and to challenge and to critique. So I actually recognize that exclusion uh, was, was, was a stage to counter the master narratives of diversity. And here is where critical race theory makes an impact. One of the really basic principles of critical race theory is that it allows the marginalized people to have their turn to speak. It's just a way to counter the master narrative. And in workplaces where that's happening, it's happening in, um, in, uh, in employee resource groups which are now taking on a more social justice advocacy role. Uh, so that's where marginalized people are you know, having a chance to speak up and to counter the, the, the narratives that have been you know, the, the dominant, that gives the dominant view. So then, you know, so, so really, so it's the consequences of difference and the perceptions of difference that create problems. So where I really see a need, and and I, 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 I'm going to be candidly uh, open and say that I really prefer not to 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 just speak about diversity. I, I much prefer to talk about social justice because I believe that uh, social change and social justice are the outcomes that that we that we should be looking for. Um, so the, the, the end goal or the end state is, is, is that we should be striving for in our, for in our workplaces 
is social social justice. Uh, my philosophy of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and then ultimately social justice is one of moral duty. My, the question that I believe that, that we should be looking for is, or trying to answer is, why are people being treated unjustly? So I believe to answer this question, a more critical examination of human resource development as a change agent is my emerged and my redefined lens for the field and my redefined and uh, emerged perspective of diversity as uh, a catalyst for change. To me, that sounds like a really powerful call to action to view HRD as a change agent to see the end state as being striving for social justice and the moral duty of answering that question about why people are being treated unjustly. I think that's a wonderful way of wrapping up our conversation, Marion. Thank you so much indeed. Um, I've really enjoyed our chat and I'm excited to see where this conversation goes during the rest of the podcast. And thank you for allowing me to have the opportunity to share. Well, please stay with us. And then uh, later in the episode, we'll have you back for the group conversation. Thank you so much indeed. Okay. My second guest for the episode is Dr. Yunju Cho. Associate Professor in the Department of Human Resource Development at the University of Texas at Tyler, and Editor-in-Chief of Human Resource Development Review. Previously, she was Associate Professor in the Department of Instructional Systems Technology at Indiana University from 2008 to 2020. Before joining Indiana University, she worked in for-profit, non-profit, and academic sectors in South Korea. Yunju's research interests include action learning in organizations, HRD, and women in leadership. She's published three books, the most recent being Korean Women in Leadership, published in 2018 and co-edited with Gary McLean. Yunju served as a board member of the AHRD from 2016 to 2018 and serves on the editorial board of four journals. She also serves with the Korea Action Learning Association. Hi, Yunju. Welcome to the HRD Masterclass podcast. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Hi, Darren. Good to see you. Okay, then. So what I'd like to do is to start off uh, focusing a little bit on your research. I know you've researched gender issues in organizations. Um, now, given the topic of the, of the episode is diversity, equity, and inclusion, I thought a good place to start would be to ask about how you see gender fitting in to the broader topic. When we talk about diversity, I mean, there are several dimensions, race, gender, nationality, and sexual orientation, things like that, right? So gender is just one of the, one of the really important dimensions uh, when we talk about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, my research, uh, uniquely Korean, because we, I not only uh, talk about uh, gender issues in a Korean context, 
So I, I, I see uh, gender issues from a cultural perspective. So uh, uh, I have been uh, conducting research on a woman in leadership uh, in uh, you know, Korean context in the past eight years. So I think gender issue is really critical when we discuss DEI. Uh, your research topic is focused in Korea. You live in the United States. And, and so what I'm wondering is when you look at those two countries and the, and the cultures involved, do you see similar sorts of gender issues in those two? Or, or, or is there a cultural or country-specific difference between the two? Of course, there are commonalities and differences uh, uh, by gender. You, you, I think uh, there are three important uh, research topics involved, uh, gender composition in the workplace and uh, uh, lack of women leaders at the top and uh, uh, particularly marginalized women groups. Okay? Those are three uh, gender-related uh, issues, wh wh wherever you live in the United States, in Korea. But uh, my research uh, focus has to do with women leaders based upon my work experience, diverse work ex experience in, in different organizations. I observed, I experienced uh, uh, being a woman leader in an organization. I know what does it mean by that in organizations, different organizations. I know that your research has leveraged Cantor's work on tokenism and was wondering how that worked out given that the theory was developed in the United States and your work has been focused in South Korea. In 1977, Cantor developed tokenism theory by examining 16 saleswomen out of a sales force of over 300 in a Fortune 500 company and revealed how women's token status negatively affected their workplace experiences. And uh, many uh, studies uh, have been conducting using tokenism theory since uh, 1977 until now, even 2019-2020, people are still using tokenism theory because we lack women leaders. But uh, we have never used uh, tokenism theory in Korea and Asia. So I was very curious about seeing what, what if I use tokenism theory and, and, and to see how it works or doesn't work in different contexts, particularly in Korean context, there should be some commonalities and differences. When you take a look at theory that's been uh, developed within Korea, mm -hmm. are there Korean theories that that also seek to explain the issues of gender in organizations? And so that, that those are those are being used within Korean research as opposed to, for example, Cantor's tokenism. Uh, I think uh, in Asia, in Korea, we have this problem of lack of indigenous theories. Okay we import Western theories yeah. and then use the, those theories to explain what's going on in Korea. So, so definitely we need more Korean, uniquely Korean theories, but still we are in the stage of using Western theories to, yeah. to mirror, to see what's going on in Korea. 
it, it could well potentially or hopefully point to an area of theoretical development over over time mm. yeah in the meantime though it sounds like like the, the, taking western theories and applying them in the korean context particularly the tokenism and and canter um so so you did that and looked at organizations in korea what what, what were the main lessons you learned from your research we developed the theory by adding two more themes to Cantor's tokenism theory, revolving around three concepts, which are visibility, contrast, and assimilation. To uh, explain the behavioral consequences of token women in organizations. Mm -hmm. Visibility, you are one of the few. You feel visible, highly visible, yeah. causing them uh, uh, performance pressure all the time, okay? And then a uh, contrast, uh, this male, dominant male uh, group, they always exaggerate differences between men and women, okay? So they, are, they feel special. Yeah. They are special compared to this minority woman, token woman. And as a result of this visibility and contrast, majority women try to uh, assimilate to this male dominant group culture. They try really hard to, 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 to be successful in this male dominate, dominated organizations. That's the reality, right? Yeah. However, we found that, yes, visibility, contrast, assimilation, those are three concepts still are applicable to Korean context. However, in, in Korea, culture, Korean culture, really, I mean, kind of help, help uh, uh, to, to expedite uh, these three concepts because uh, the Korean culture is based upon male dominance and collectivism and traditional culture, so-called Confucianism. Mm -hmm treat uh, women and women leaders altogether a secondary citizen. But a few women <laughs> leaders, if they get, uh, take uh, leadership roles, leadership positions, if they become executives, then they try to change this male dominated culture. So I think we call it resistance. Mm -hmm. Resistance. They try to change the culture by resisting um, uh, men's stereotypes against women, by capitalizing on their competencies and strengths, and they, by they going their own way, right? And then uh, and, and another by uh, creating this new norm, by creating uh, these opportunities for the women in the leadership pipeline. New roles, they provide new roles for uh, this uh, woman in the uh, leadership pipeline. So I, we, we added one more theme like a, called resistance. So Kant's original three concepts, visibility, contrast, and assimilation became culture, visibility, contrast, assimilation and resistance. Yeah, it sounds like without resistance, it sounds like part of the resistance is against the 
organizational culture and then part yeah. of it is resistance against a national culture exactly yeah so so uh, when i found when we found these five things particularly resistance we were elated we were really happy because because up to that moment in the past like a, how many years like a seven eight years we were struggling what to provide them, how to provide, what are the alternatives? Because what we are talking about when we talk about gender issues, the, the diversity, equal, equity, and inclusion, we are basically talking about culture, cultural change. What, what I was wondering there was um, if, if somebody assimilates, then they are playing by the existing rules and they get to the top through those rules. And then because they've assimilated, they require others to also play by the rules. Right. Re resistance implies I'm going to fight. I'm going to change the rules. What I'm wondering is whether that resistance starts on the way up or whether it starts at the top, i.e. do I have to assimilate until I get to CEO? Then when I'm at yeah, CEO, yeah, I can then resist. So, so our... our uh observation, our finding, there is a condition to resist. You have to take leadership roles. And then up to that moment, you have to show your performance. So you are recognized. You, you should be recognized in the organization. Otherwise, you cannot convince. And you cannot convince the junior team members to move forward, to change their culture, right? Yeah. So I, I, we equate uh, the resistance, women's, women leaders' resistance with tempered radicals in Western contexts. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, what, what is the message of these tempered radicals? They should stay in the organization for a long time so that they have these <laughs> this, uh, allies, yeah. right, rather than enemies so that they can convince people to change culture. Uh, but uh, this woman, we, uh, we, what we are talking about, I mean, those women are few, only a few. I think there are not many. They are not majority. Uh, they are, uh, we found like 28 out of 107, then maybe 25%, 26% of women, they consider themselves uh, as like a tempered radicals. And they didn't uh, uh, coin the term, but we think they are red, uh, tempered radicals. From a longitudinal perspective, have you studied them long enough to know whether that tempered radicalism um, results in change, results in increased performance? Exactly. Yeah, it takes time. So how can... Can you change culture overnight? Never ever. No. Even though it takes time, it is change. It is uh, happening. It is gradual. How many years? I don't know. We don't know. But if we have more women like that, I mean, these tempered radicals, ten years within ten years, five years, ten years, fifteen years, the culture will change. That's yeah. our hope. Um, have you seen a difference between what it looks like for women in leadership in in Korean-owned companies versus 
multinationals who yeah. have an office in Korea. Is yeah. it, the, the Korean culture, national culture is in both, but I wasn't sure right. whether the organizational culture yeah. was different. I, when I was conducting research on multinational corporations, women CEOs in multinational corporations in Korea, there, there is none a female CEO in large companies. This is a pretty recent phenomenon, have, okay. having uh, one <laughs> woman CEO in, in large company, right? Back then, there was none. Yeah. But I interviewed 15 women CEOs in multinational corporations in Korea. So what does it mean? <laughs> so only multinational corporations, they dare to appoint <laughs> women CEOs, no matter, I mean, based upon performance. Performance, yeah. only performance, right? However, uh, who, no matter who they are, based upon my uh, series of uh, research on, on women, women, women leaders in Korea, there are some uh, commonalities. These women, women are feminine on the surface. If you look aggressive, if you are aggressive, you cannot go up. Mm -hmm. Because that counterbalances the common sense, your common sense on women, right? So on the surface, they look really feminine. But deep in their heart, I mean, they, I mean, in terms of performance, they are excellent. They are excellent and they are on the top. So if the CEO in large companies, the CEOs in large companies, if they think, okay, it's time to hire women CEO, <laughs> then there will be more women CEOs. Now, now, when you take a look at the lessons learned from Korea and then take a look around the culture that you see in the United States and, and, and other countries too, do you see that there's some generalizability around what you found? Are, you, are there implications for women in leadership across cultures, across countries? In terms of number of women leaders, definitely. I mean, to the extent, how many? Maybe different, like uh, how many uh, CEO, women CEO in the United States? Much, I mean, uh, <laughs> many more than Definitely Korea, as I told you, there is only one uh, woman CEO in large companies in Korea at the moment. How many? Uh, better than one, right? In the United States, still, it is not, uh, it is less than expected, right? In any countries, this is a huge, uh, we are missing this. Uh, something the, the uh, enough number of women leaders even even in Nor uh, the Nordic countries <laughs> they try to make it uh, more I think they are very uh, exemplary compared to the United States so so one of the issues uh, the gender uh, issues have to has to do with gen gender composition how many yeah. is enough still trying hard but we didn't meet the requirement <laughs> yeah so as a as a final question um i'm 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 thinking about the hrd implications um and so when you take a look at hrd functions within korean organizations for example what what advice do you have for hrd 
practitioners in those organizations that as to steps they could take to help changes within, given that they are also operating as resistance against a national culture and organizational culture. But is there specific steps that HRD could be taking in these companies? Our study finding, uh, actually, we showed there is a possibility, okay, cultural change. And there are some women uh, leaders, they are trying to change the culture uh, and in a good way, in a good, in, a, in the right direction uh, to make organization more diverse, more inclusive, more equitable, yep. <laughs> right? This is the right direction, right? Then HRD, the role of HRD is to make uh, this organized culture more open to uh, more women yeah. <laughs> and, and, and grow, develop uh, this woman in the leadership pipeline using good examples, using this, this uh, available good examples as mentors. Yeah. Right? So I think, uh, uh, so uh, use a positive outlook. Let's, let's use a positive outlook. outlook. Uh, a culture can change those low and use these uh, exemplary women leaders, those small, okay? We can use mentors. Yeah. I think those, those are HRD uh, uh, implications. Uh, I think uh, it, is, uh, it will be effective hit, uh, in Korea, but in the United States, because we are much more international global, okay? To understand other cultures, particularly Korean culture, Asian culture, uh, it, it helps, okay? Yes. So uh, those are the suggestions. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, Yandru, thank you so much indeed for our time to, uh, today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity again. My third guest for the episode is Dr. Torrance Sparkman, Associate Professor at the Rochester Institute of Technology in the Saunders College of Business. Torrance transitioned into academe after working as an executive recruiter and minister. As a member of the management department at Rochester Institute, he teaches human resource management and human resource development courses. Torrance's research primarily focuses on diversity and inclusion and leadership development. He's currently the guest editor for an issue of Advances in Developing Human Resources focused on black male leadership development and is a member of AHRD's Anti-Racism Committee. Hi, Torrance. Welcome to the HRD Masterclass podcast. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on diversity, equity and inclusion. Hey, Darren, I, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for, for having me. I was thinking of starting by referring back to uh, a comment that Yonju made, which was essentially about meritocracy and sort of the belief that employees can rise through the organization based on performance. And, and what I was wondering was whether that works the same way for all employees. And so whether employees are impacted by the reality mm -hmm. that there are inequities in their status when they start. Is it, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think meritocracy can work if we can identify 
uh, and address uh, racialized and genderized social structures where the system gives advantage to one race or to one gender over another. Uh, it, it, it systematically ingrains and reproduces hierarchical relations between races where one gender or one race is only perceived to be able to do a lesser job. Barrett et al. 2004 say that there can be environmental barriers such as tracking into a, what they call, I'm gonna use air quotes, appropriate jobs and discrimination in hiring and promotion. We would call this pigeonholing. Uh, so for example, when I worked as an executive recruiter um, one of the things I would see is that when I try to recruit accountants from the, the big six or big four accounting firms, most of the, uh, the, the minorities and the people of color would be in audit positions where they were doing government or nonprofit audit as opposed to Fortune 500 clients, as opposed to having Fortune 500 clients. I would also see where engineers who had great experience would you know be relegated to overnight positions or the staff positions as opposed to executive positions also meritocracy can work if we can lift our our assessment of skill knowledge and ability and potential out of pre-structured frameworks that say that you have to come from school x or that you have to come from y neighborhood or that you have to speak with this inflection or or this phonetic um, they are, uh, there are historically black colleges and, uh, uh, universities that produce outstanding business students and scientists and PhDs. Um, but when it comes to the acquisition of their first job, uh, many times they are perceived to be less capable, uh, than their counterparts. So that's a really interesting point. Cause it sounds to me, therefore, like people, are coming in and they're actually at different starting points so that they're, they're at different places when they start in the organization is that how you're seeing it yes and, and i and i think um as much as we've talked about the idea of post-racial society what we could see in our society now is that we're not post-racial we 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 are we, we see in the violence committed against asians and, and blacks and uh brown people we see unequal treatment. Well, Anderson et al. Uh, 2012 talk about the challenges of navigating in racial caste systems, and they describe how Blacks operate with two ideas. Number one, that this is, this is in this society, we automatically start off with one strike. And number two, that we have to be twice as good. And in fact, uh, Dr. Uh, Condoleezza Rice says we have to be twice as good just to get half as far. Yeah, that, that baseball analogy is a particularly powerful one, actually, that you referred to there. Like the picture it creates is one of like, somebody coming to bat. They, as, they, as they get to the plate to bat, they're already on one strike. So they have to be even better to even get to first base. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, they have to be even better to make the major leagues. Yes. So, so the, the, the perception was, or can be that, you know, this person does not have the same skill set. Uh, they might be able to run fast, but can they think through the game? 
right? Can they be, yeah. can they put themselves in positions uh, where they can anticipate? Are they able to, to use more of the cognitive side whether the, rather than the physical ability, right? You know, and I think that these are the kinds of barriers that, uh, you know, Black folks experience when they're coming into the workplace and when it comes to hiring and promotion. So that already sounds a bad scenario. And I'm wondering what happens if you then layer on other other factors? For example, if you look at both race and gender, what happens if you look at those two things together? That's that's a that's a really uh, interesting and, and 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 important question. When we look at both race and gender, what it allows us to do is to look at these issues uh, from the perspective of intersectionality, and it allows us to identify different forms of societal oppression experienced by you know marginalized groups, and because you know race and gender. Uh, are typically ones that we see immediately or that they're identifiable, it makes us more uncomfortable to deal with it for some reason. Um, but, but as I said, I, I see this as being able to, uh, in my practice of you know, HRD and my philosophy of HRD, I, I see you know, being able to look at races, gender, race and gender as uh, an opportunity to really solve one of the most difficult problems that we have in our society. And so it, it's helpful if we're able to bring, you know, both of those um, identities together or any other kind of identities together to give us a full of picture of what this means to those individuals or what the, uh, what forms of oppression uh, they experience. Yeah, it does feel like we're, the HRD is well-placed to address social justice issues and diversity issues. But I actually wonder whether when you look at HRD in organizations, do you actually see them taking advantage of the position that it's in? Could HRD be playing a more lead role? Yeah, I, I think HRD has the, has the framework to address, um, you know, issues of diversity and, and social justice um, but I think we're in the process of, of reaching critical mass. Um, you know, change is in our DNA, learning is in our DNA, performance is in our DNA. Um, we understand the psychology of resistance. We, we understand action and reaction and systems. We understand paradigms and perspectives, which, which help us to work with individuals, teams, organizations, um, and communities, and uh, as, as McLean says, uh, the, the whole of humanity. So the, the foundation is there. But for me, the question that we have to ask is, do we have the will and the confidence and the equipment to address uh, social justice and diversity issues? Um, I, I think we're getting there. Um, we're still wrapping our minds around diversity and inclusion concepts, you know, around identity and around intersectionality, around the impact of diversity on career development and work experiences. Yeah, I like the way you referred to confidence in there. As in, I, I think about HRD professionals in, in companies. I think about the confidence or the, the, the 
the passion, the commitment that it takes to for for them to put their hand up for, and, mm -hmm. and to speak out, particularly if um, that's not already happening at an executive level. It's almost mm -hmm. as if HRD has the potential to be able to open the door, walk into the boardroom and raise tough questions. Mm -hmm. um, but it takes some confidence to feel like, yeah, not only not only could I do that, but I should actually be doing that. I think in order for us to 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 play a lead role, we've got to be able to demonstrate both uh, advocacy and accountability and diversity and inclusion. We create the safe space or what uh, Causal and York's uh, 2015 described as a an empathic space where people can demonstrate an ability to understand and share each other's feelings. And then we also need to be able to give tools. Uh, uh, so for example, we can do diversity scorecards, we can do diversity plans, and we can use uh, instruments like uh, Dr. Hughes's uh, diversity intelligence instrument. So, you know, these are things that we can do both internally and externally to, you know, to demonstrate uh, our ability to, to, to take a lead role, but we have to practice these things you know, in, in our academy and in our programs so that we can gain the confidence to be able to do it. That makes me think about the, the skill set that an HRD practitioner needs to be able to be effective in that space. And, and, and it sounds as if some of it is skills and some of it's knowledge. It, it also sounds as if given the nature of bias in organizations, that there's a significant role to be played in understanding systems and systems yeah. theory. And yeah. it does sound as if the root cause of many of the problems lie in a systemic nature. So presumably HRD is well-placed to support these efforts if they can come at them from a systemic perspective. I, I, I agree with you. Darren, to, to an extent, I, I think, um, you know, being able to understand, you know, push and pull factors and being able to understand networks and links and, you know, what happens when we introduce interventions and those kinds of things. I think that's, I think that's important. Um, I do think that, I do think that there is a morality, uh, <laughs> Um, issue or morality, uh, uh, how could I say, framework that we we need to be able to address. So even we can we might even break it down to ethical, right? In that uh, you know between morals and, and ethics, um, I think we need to talk about that it's not right to treat people inequitably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and I, I think we need to understand um, what that means from an individual perspective, what it means from a group perspective and what it means from an organizational perspective, and even what it means from a societal perspective. Right. So for me, 
is not just, you know, us understanding the system, it's uh, understanding the individual. Yeah, because I, I can picture um, a, a common scenario, I think, that HRD practitioners face is they're put into a, they're, they're, they're asked to lead a class on leadership development and they walk into the room and the room is predominantly middle-aged white men mm -hmm. um and and it feels there as if from what you're saying that first of all there is a a moral or ethical responsibility to call that out and to mm -hmm. seek ways of addressing that mm -hmm. but it also sounds as if if we can skill hrd practitioners correctly that there is a way of them being able to use that situation for a discussion in that classroom that they've walked into that mm -hmm. they could actually seeing as that it's a leadership development class there's actually an opportunity there for the facilitator to engage that room in the bias that these people have found themselves a part of mm -hmm. yeah I, I i think that's right one of the things that we could probably do a a, a much better job is just talking about our own backgrounds and talking about our own experiences and, and immersing ourselves in experiences where we are uh, different. You know, we are the person that's quote unquote, that stands out. Yeah. And we can do that in our classrooms, right? Uh, I'll give you an example. When I was at the University of Houston, we took a, a group of students to Brazil and uh, we went to a restaurant. It was about 12 of us. I was the only African-American man. Um, and there were a couple of African-American women and, uh, you know, other uh, whites uh, in the class. And um, uh, <laughs> we, went to, we went to dinner and we went up to the front to pay our bill. And uh, while we, I was behind quite a few people, um, and so what, what they witnessed was one of the servers or one of the cashiers come from behind the counter to come and serve me. And I was way behind. I mean, I was like five or six people behind. And so she came and took my, you know, my, my payment. And uh, the students turned around like, what is going on here? Did she not see the rest of us standing in line? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that was eye-opening. Yeah. It was eye-opening for me because it was the first time that had ever happened in my life, <laughs> you know, where, where, where I was preferred over somebody else. That, at least, let, let me put it this way, at least visibly like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but I think that experience was eye-opening for some of them because, you know, for them... It's like, you know, um, that was unfair, which it was, right? But to have it happen to them in that way was just like, wow. I, you know, uh, and, and we talked about it after it. And, you know, I, I you know, I, I talked about how good it made me feel that I was preferred. Yeah. Right? But I did notice that it wasn't right. <laughs> Now, at that point, I probably should have said, which I didn't, you know, get the other folks in front of me. 
but this is, you know, this brings up issues of culture um, and preference in a culture. Uh, it brings up race and gender, right? And yeah. so, um, but I think we need to be able to, to talk about experience and take our students to places where, um, you know, they can experience being different. And I think that starts with us, you know, with AHRD. Yeah, so an HRD practitioner listening to this and thinking, you know, what are some steps that I can take um, in order to play a, a, a greater role in this space? It sounds like there's at least two coming out there. One is to understand yourself, to examine mm -hmm. your own background and your own upbringing um, and to look through that and to understand, therefore, what, what, you're, what you're already bringing to the table and what biases you've experienced in your life and then it sounds like the second piece then is to put yourself you know put yourself naturally in positions where um, you are experiencing things differently so you can get glimpses of what bias looks like and feels like and how you react in those situations yeah, and I, th I think uh, we could also, you know, structure them too, uh, Darren, that um, we have students who have, you know, the ability to, um, to analyze, to design and implement initiatives uh, in any place, right? Whether it be a corporation, whether it be, a, 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 you know, non-government organization, or whether it be a community organization. We could even send students um, or help them make connections in places where they do social justice, right? And help them to understand what does change look like uh, for a social justice agency, right? What does learning look like for uh, uh, you know, changing attitudes in communities. Yeah. What does performance <laughs> look like for agencies that are trying to deal with these kinds of situations? Yeah, and you and we can do that in education. We can do it in practice. We uh, somebody uh, who, for example, is building a leadership development program for an organization. There's a number of actions that you've just talked about that could apply by building it into leadership classes in a company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, well, Torrance, I, I really enjoyed our conversation today. I, I, I feel like there's so much here. We could keep talking, obviously, for a lot longer, and uh, and time constrains us, but I did definitely want to thank you for all of your time and, um, and for taking us through all of this today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Darren. I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about it. And I, as I said, I, I think, you know, talking about it and experiencing um, these kinds of things are, are important for us individually and for the, you know, and for the academy. Well, please stay with us as uh, Marilyn and Yonju will be rejoining us then for the group conversation. But for now, thank you so much, Torrance. Thanks, Darren. Up next, we have the group discussion, where my guests are together to discuss their shared passion for the episode's topic. 
This discussion is brought to you thanks to the sponsorship support of the Department of Human Resource Development at the University of Texas at Tyler, Seoul's College of Business. The HRD department provides BS, MS and PhD degrees in human resource development with the mission of leading the HRD field through innovative scholarship, academic excellence and professional service. The HRD department provides students with opportunities to combine study and professional experiences to develop, apply, synthesize and evaluate HRD knowledge and address performance needs, issues and problems of both for-profit and not-for-profit organizations. For full information, check out their website by doing a Google search for UT Tyler HRD. You'll find their page at the top of the search results. Okay, welcome back to the HRD Masterclass podcast. Our focus for this episode is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I've already met one-to-one with Marilyn Bird, Yunju Cho, and Torrance Sparkman. And for the final section of the episode, we're all together for our group chat. So I'd like to welcome back Marilyn, Yunju, and Torrance. Good morning from Seoul. Good to be here. Hi, everybody. Okay, then. So for our group discussion, I'd like to... Uh, I'd like to dig a little into some of the topics from your one-to-ones and also explore a couple of new ideas as well. And I thought a good place to start would be to focus in on HRD. When I listened to the conversations that we had, it feels like clearly diversity, equity, and inclusion is a broad topic that touches on many different functions within an organization. So I was wondering what you see HRD owning and driving. Uh, the good news is that uh, the more recent uh, research on diversity, uh, the most impact- effective uh, theoretical framework has to do with learning paradigm. So uh, talking with other people, uh, we learn cultural differences. We have to pay attention to learning, which is our strength. HRD practitioners, scholars and practitioners, our strength lies in the diversity, the most recent uh, paradigm for diversity. Uh, However, I'd like to add one more thing. Uh, Of course, DEI, it is an integrated concept. It is not separate from three different uh, concepts, right? When we think of it as as an integrated uh, concept, then HRD uh, doesn't stand alone. We have to collaborate with other uh, HR functions in the organization and and managers and leaders as well. So of course, HRD, we have a strength in pursuing ensuring diversity in the organization and we can do that. This is our strength, but at the same time, we have to think about how to collaborate with other functions. Yeah, and I'd I'd say, Darren, that I, I think HRD can also own the, the change process. I think we have a format for you know analyzing uh, an environment, for understanding what's working in that vi- environment and what's not working in that environment. We have an understanding of what works in teams and what doesn't work in a team. Um, and I, I think it's appropriate for us to um, see diversity and equity and inclusion as an opportunity for us to drive those kinds of changes in organizations. And how we can be responsible for that is to, 
you know, to really take a look at, you know, how do we um, understand, you know, what performance is and, you know, whether it's an individual basis or a team basis or an organizational basis, what kinds of things are we trying to achieve as it relates to diversity and inclusion? Are we just trying to achieve, you know, uh, an understanding of what it is? Or are we trying to see that there's an element of performance uh, or standards for performance that need to be met with regard to diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion? Uh, thank you both for your insights. And, and may I just add, I firmly believe that HRD should stay you know, strongly um, rooted in our, uh, our foundations of learning and performance because that, you know, that, that grounds us. I think that grounds the field of HRD. So I don't think we, you know, I think we should always stay close to our roots of learning and performance. But, but you know, for, from, I, I think initially though, HRD, uh, our field has, has not, did not start out actually addressing diversity. Uh, I, so, so the good thing is that we are a, an emergent field, and and you know, as as time has has gone by, we have learned we have learned that you know we need to address uh, diversity from the aspect of the social systems, and you know what are the social issues that prevent people from learning and performing well. So I think we should own, continue to own our roots, but I think we should continue to be open-minded and we should develop a, you know, a more sensitivity to diversity. And what, what and, and you know, we, we really need to understand what is, what are we talking about when we say diversity? Are we talking about people? Are we talking about a process? So I think, you know, to, to begin with, when we're talking about what do we own, we should own our, our, our roots. But then again, we should learn that we, we need to, to embrace, to embrace issues that are concerning to people and the way they learn. When um, Yonju started off the answer to that first question, one of the things that she raised there was about the importance of partnering and collaborating. And, and one of the one of the things that I think practitioners often uh, face on a day-to-day -day basis is this uh, partnering between HRD and HRM and who who owns what and who does what and how do we work together. And, I, and I'm wondering when you take a look at diversity um, and think about collaboration, who, who do you see HRD collaborating with and and how important is that? relationship between HRD and HRM? When we talk about diversity, diversity is everywhere. So we need to be collab we need to be doing our work throughout the organization. Certainly we need to collaborate with with um, with HRM, you know, in the hiring functions and, and you know making sure that when we bring in when HRM brings in people, well HRD has to be responsible for developing the talent and that sort of thing. Collaborating, we need to collaborate throughout the whole organization. But I think our, our, our responsibility for our, with the HRM function is to make sure we're helping to develop talent and not just for diversity people, for everybody. But I want to be sure that people who are marginalized, 
that they are not left at the door because that happens a lot of times. And I believe that's where, you know, whether or not I'm um, a leader, whether or not, you know, I'm, I'm just, a, a, just, a, you know, just a practitioner, we leave people at the door sometimes because of their difference. I, I think uh, this uh, question actually uh, let me uh, think about uh, this, uh, what we are doing in higher education institutions. Uh, maybe HRD can learn from higher education's initiatives right now. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is the buzzword in higher education institutions. Uh, the most successful higher education institutions uh, talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, they have their own office, diversity office, DEI office. There is so many different dimensions we have to deal with, like gender uh, and, and social class and, and disability, marginalized groups, and many different things. If we don't have any uh, independent unit or function, then uh, how can we collaborate uh, just one by one? HRD and HRM is not enough. We need to involve many different functions under the umbrella of this specialized office and unit. We can learn from higher education institutions in terms of that. Absolutely. Well, I'll just chime in here. I think you know when it comes to HRM and HRD in terms of collaboration, um, we can see in some of the topics that have been researched that uh, there are some similarities uh, in terms of the you know, diversity training, in terms of diversity among teams and work groups, and also diversity education. Uh, both of these uh, fields, both of these disciplines have examined those topics. Um, but I think where we are able to be a little more uh, unique is that we can move a little bit further away from just the, the management of, uh, of, of, of retention and the prevention of, uh, you know, of, of uh, 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 loss, uh, employment loss. Uh, and we can move towards, you know, understanding different perceptions of inclusion, you know, understanding, you know, different ways of retaining and different ways of uh, understanding what the acquisition of talent, you know, looks like. Um, and also, we have a way of uh, uh, a building climate, you know, uh, uh, creating an atmosphere where, you know, learning is, is what's driving the you know, the, the performance and um, where, you know, individuals have an opportunity to express themselves in a way that they feel like they are contributing uh, to more than just a team project, but they're contributing to the uh, performance of the entire organization and that they feel like, you know, it's worth it to do so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that climate piece is interesting. It, it, it makes me think about something that Marilyn said a few moments ago, which was about what HRD can be doing to address the different learning needs of a, of a diverse workforce. I wonder if you'd be willing to expand on what you said there a little more and just talk a bit, a bit more about how you see HRD adapting what it does to address the learning needs of a diverse workforce. I think about the learning organization. And I, you know, I keep going back to the, to the old Schuylers and thinking about um, um, uh, Watkins and, and Marsick and, and, and um, Sengay and thinking about the learning organization. So, you know, 
companies and organizations are actually, I believe, trying to model themselves as learning organizations because they recognize the importance of the skills and the knowledge and the competencies of their people, of their human resources. So all, it doesn't matter if, if, you know, who the person is, my workforce is learning and, and they're performing to create value for my company. So, so, so here, I, I don't see that difference, you know, diversity really should make a difference. Here's where I think diversity will make a difference. It's because diverse groups of people sometimes experience biases that creates their, uh, 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 an inhibitor or prevents them from learning and performance. So, so, the, so, so, so in other words, I would hesitate, I, I wouldn't want to think that my job as an as a HRD practitioner would be to separate out learning needs of a diverse group. But I do need to be aware that diverse groups of people have barriers. They're going to experience, probably, they're going to experience maybe stereotypes. They're going to experience, uh, I said, biases. They're going to experience some relationship problems and conflict because of their difference. So uh, I totally agree with Marlene saying we are not, uh, uh, we shouldn't be doing differently. We can, uh, we just continue doing what we are doing well. However, I mean, strategy wise, tactical wise, and treatment wise, we should be more detailed and strategic. That's the difference. Because, because the participants, uh, the employees, students, they are different, much more diverse than before compared to 20, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, they have their own voices. That, those are the differences. We have to come up with solutions accordingly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I would agree with both. I, I, I think that, uh, you know, being able to understand that, you know, each individual is coming with their own, you know, identity set, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, but, but we are able to navigate an understanding of what that means to that individual. Um, but again, I think we also do create the climate for that understanding to take place. Listen to the answers there. I'm I'm thinking about the the skill set the HRD practitioners need to to rise to the challenge. So you're describing to me, I think, an amazing potential for HRD to have an impact in this space within organizations. What I'm wondering is whether HRD education is preparing HRD practitioners to actually work on diversity in organizations or whether there's more that HRD education can be doing to prepare practitioners? I think one of the first things we need to decide is what we will be accountable for as a discipline. Um, I think this goes back to the idea of, uh, you know, how, we, how are we going to collaborate and how does this jive with uh, our foundations, our, our, our paradigms and our theories um, related to, you know, who we are as a discipline? Uh, what kinds of things do we, you know, what, what are musts? 
um, what's in our wheelhouse in terms of our expertise, and what kinds of things do we do to make sure that um, you know, we, we leverage our, our areas of expertise. I think more specifically, we might consider having a core curriculum um, you know, that says that these are the kinds of uh, topics that need to be discussed in uh, HRD programs. And we might need to um, establish certification as it relates to our ability to, to utilize those, those, those topics and, and to exercise those topics in, in a workplace. And I, I think also, you know, we um, can create immersion experiences where our students are physically in a space where they feel and understand the, you know, you know how difference impacts them individually. And we can talk about it. But we also can develop and present cases uh, focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, but again, it goes back to, you know, what do I need to do as the instructor, first of all, to feel confident that I'm able to do this and to make sure that my students um, have a, a level of, of confidence as they're going into the workplace. So, you know, these are things that we need to build into our, our program. Okay. What to teach is important, but at the same time, how to teach is important, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I think uh, Rod uh, Giddens uh, is uh, providing uh, his uh, way, like a, we have to use critical action research. I think that's one of the ways, but uh, at the same time, action learning approach, like action-oriented uh, uh, ways, approaches might be much more effective to uh, uh, say, okay, they learn something, they are practicing really in the organization, okay? So we need to introduce this experiential, action-oriented uh, uh, ways, approaches in HRD curriculum. As, as we talk about all of that, I was thinking about the practitioner piece and influencing practice. And when I take a look at practice, probably one of the, the most consistent things I see in HRD practice when it comes to diversity is diversity training. And that seems to have been like a core part of HRD's response to diversity for, for decades. What I'm wondering is when you take a look at diversity training, whether you see that actually being an effective part of HRD's response. Take a look at uh, some of the uh, research on diversity training. Training is standalone diverse initiative. It fails. Research uh, consistently pointed out, right? But it, it is combined with other research, uh, other diversity initiatives like a diversity committee, diverse staff, specialized unit, uh, mentoring. Uh, then uh, diverse training can be much more effective. Okay, so if you go to the EEOC website, mm -hmm. and you know when people uh, you know, uh, uh, file complaints and then it goes to litigation. What does the judge say that they need to do to, to correct the problem? It's usually diversity training, particularly yes. when it's a diversity issue. Is you know, so many, you know, either the manager, uh, uh, somebody needs to do training. So training is, is remedial. When you say diversity training, just what does that mean? What are you telling folks that they need to do? because, you know, what type of issue was it? So you need to name it what it is. If it was sexual harassment, go to sexual harassment training. 
Don't just put everything under the umbrella of diversity because that could, first of all, is going to put people off because they don't know what they're going for. Right. So we got to name what it is. But again, the training is not always the answer. Good point. Yeah, you know, when we think about uh, our, our framework, so for example, strategic HRD, you know, how does diversity, if we're going to, if we're going to call it diversity training, how does diversity training help the organization to accomplish what they, uh, what they do as a, as a, as a business? Mm -hmm. uh, the diversity education should help us to apply what we've learned towards solving novel problems. You know, that is, you know, uh, stuff that we come across that's new, mm -hmm. right? It, it has to do even with our approach to solving the problem, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that there are specific issues that we deal with constantly, you know, as it relates to discrimination, right? But how do we come back and say um, the things that we've learned have helped us to solve the discrimination problem that specifically exists in this context or in this organization? But I wonder how companies are actually building in diversity into their, you know, to their mission, to their actual mission, so that, so that say, for instance, we did have a, a, a problem or an issue that somebody sued us. And, you know, then we, 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 we're thinking about, we need to have training. That's where HRD would come in because HRD would, would know the type, I hope, would know by, you know, being in collaboration with, with HRM and with all parts of the company, HRD would know how to customize educational programs or training programs to, you know, to match, to match the mission, because I think that's what the companies need to be, you know, uh, trying to get to. This was my mission. Diversity was in my mission. We failed. I don't want to fail. I got to make it right. And that's where we step in because we got to customize and get them back on track. So the actual learning, uh, founding father of actual learning, Reginald Revans said, I mean, uh, what if, if a, a training, a, 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 an actual learning doesn't change a person's mindset, what's the use of it? Mm -hmm. I think that is really aligned with what Torrance said. I like that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, very powerful. That actually feels like the perfect ending for the episode actually and um, because i do unfortunately we have reached the end of time the end of the time for today this has been a fascinating conversation and i wanted to say thank you to all three of you for your time and sharing your expertise with us and thank, thank you, you for much. having us thank you our pleasure thank you so much for joining me for this episode it was wonderful spending time with Marilyn, Yunju, and Torrance. If you enjoyed the episode, check out our others to explore such topics as training and development, learning organizations, critical HRD, and much more. New episodes release weekly for this first series. To learn more about the series, check out hrdmasterclass.com. And to learn about the Academy of Human Resource Development, check out ahrd.org. By becoming a member, you can access extra bonus materials not included in the podcast. 
Also, don't forget to look into our group discussion sponsor, the Department of Human Resource Development at the University of Texas at Tyler, Souls College of Business. I'm looking forward to being with you in our next episode. Until then, this is Darren Short signing off from the HRD Masterclass. HRD Masterclass Podcast is brought to you by the Academy of Human Resource Development and is a production of allbypodcast.com.